Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a girlfriend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Happy Wednesday, my friends. The conversation today is one that I've been wanting to have on the happy hour for close to a year. I met Megan Lively last year at an event at the ERLC that we were both speaking at. I was invited to share on the topic of how to care for your friends as they face healing from abuse. It's an important topic and one the church often doesn't do well. Megan was there to share her story. She's going to share parts of that story with us today. You see, Megan was raped while in seminary. She reported that rape and then nothing happened. Fast forward 15 years later and Megan told her husband for the first time about the incident. He was in fact the first person that she had told since she reported it all those years ago. Megan and I have talked before and after this interview about what we hope listeners will understand from hearing this episode today. We hope that you'll hear number one, how not to handle a report of abuse as it happened to Megan in 2003. And you'll hear what that felt like for her to not be seen, to not be believed, to not be taken care of. And number two, you'll see what the right and biblical and appropriate response to abuse being reported like she experienced in 2018. All those years later, the response was affirming and life-giving and life-changing for her. These two experiences offer Megan a unique perspective, and I hope they offer all of us understanding, knowledge, and wisdom with how we might respond when learning about abuse. Before we get to my conversation with Megan, I need to ask you, do you subscribe to our newsletter? If you do, did you see what we announced last week? We announced that registration for our happy hour in Israel with Tara Lee Cobble Trip has officially opened. If you missed the email, first go to jamieivy.com, sign up for our newsletter. I promise we won't spam you. We send weekly emails with details about our guests that we have on the show, fun things we want to share, and all the information that you need to know for upcoming events. The second place to go is jamieivy.com slash Israel Trip. You're going to see all the information about the trip there. All right, friends, here is my conversation with my friend, Megan. Hey, Megan, welcome to the happy hour. Hey, Jamie. Thank you. This is super exciting. And I've been wanting to have you on since I met you. Was that last fall or was it 18 years ago now? I can't even remember where time has gone. When did I meet you? I think we met in Dallas last fall. Was it last yes. fall at the Caring yes. Con- the Caring Well Conference? That's right. Um, that ERLC puts on, and I met you there and heard you share your story, and I immediately knew I was like, "Oh, I got to have this girl in the happy hour." And so here we are. But introduce yourself to my listeners. Um, where do you live? Tell us about your family. What do you do? All those fun things. Okay, my name is Megan Lively, and I live in Eastern North Carolina. I'm married to Vincent who works in insurance at Farm Bureau. And I love to tell people this, that he was my insurance agent long before we ever started dating. And <laughs> I fell in love with him after that. So I share that around town because it, he, he genuinely is a, a good man and, and he loves what he does. He, he went to Carolina and majored in sociology and I'm a Carolina fan. So there was an instant connection there. And we have two children. Reed is 12 and Charlotte Gray is four going on 16. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you with that. I hear you with that. And what is your job? Tell me about what you do. A company I created last year, I believe it launched in May. It's called Relevant Reach and it equips churches, Christian organizations, pastors, anyone that works in any type of Christian ministry 
on how to do social media. I noticed that there was a lack of resources for small to medium-sized churches and organizations, crisis pregnancy centers, even down to FCA. These people know the Bible, but they don't know Twitter or Instagram or what a hashtag is. And so I created an online membership that you can pretty much give your social media to anyone, to a a 65-year-old volunteer or a 19-year-old intern. And it equips you on all things social media. I love that. You know, that's interesting that you started that because I go to a large church. And so our resources are more than a smaller church. And if we've ever seen the differences and what that does, it's when we've all had to go to online church. You know, online church has been this crazy thing that our church is fully capable of doing. We pull off, you know, great Sunday services that we put online every single week. And I remember, I think it, oh gosh, who said it? I saw it on Twitter. It's a pastor. He's in Dallas now. He used to live in New York City and I cannot remember his name. And I feel so bad about that because he's a friend of Aaron's. He said early on into quarantine, he said, all you small churches do not feel sad when you watch what the bigger churches are do. Like just use their resources. And it's just interesting. I'm so thankful that you did that because there is this divide between what a small church and a large church can do, but they still have so much, um, so many amazing people that know the Bible and need to get it out there. And so... Kudos to you. And it's a mission field. I think for a pastor, he may say, well, I I don't use Instagram or I don't use Facebook. Well, your people are there. Yeah. Your community is there. The lost are there. And why would you not take advantage of a free resource when you can? I, I, I see social media as a mission field instead of as drama. And so I focus on the big three and that's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I think by doing that inside the membership, people aren't as overwhelmed because they might know two of three or one of those three, but I teach them how to effectively use those to reach people in their communities for Christ and I love it. and to engage with current members online. Yeah, I love it. Do you have a TikTok account? Oh, I don't either. You're going to laugh at me. <laughs> no, because- I don't either. <laughs> oh, you don't? Oh, God. No, no. Better. no. I mean, I have it on my phone because someone sent me a video once. I needed it to watch it or something. I've never done it. I don't think I ever will. Like, you know, you and I are both over 40. So I just am like, I'm wondering where that cutoff is for TikTok users to put out videos. Well, Sharon... <laughs> Miller, she's posted a few things and I was like, I I feel so old, but I've never used a lot of Snapchat or TikTok because you can't use it for business or marketing. Yeah. And so if you can't market your church and I say market your church, I don't mean you sell your church. I mean, you reach people through these yeah, sites. For sure. And so I don't focus on the, um, what the, I should focus on what the younger people are doing because we need the younger people in our churches. So maybe I should change my model. So thank you for that <laughs> well, challenge, Jamie. When you, when you add TikTok in, you let me know and I'm going to sign up for your class so I can learn how to do TikTok. Megan, I met you, like I mentioned, at a conference that the ERLC, which is the Ethics and Religious Liberty, I never remember the C. What is the C? Commission. Commission. I always want to be like committee, conference. It's an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm just one of the biggest fans of what the ERLC is doing. And I met you at their conference that they put on called Caring Well. And the conference was, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you shared your story there. The conference was kind of a a response to what we were seeing in church and specifically in the Southern Baptist churches, because that's where the arm of the ERLC comes off of. And you shared your story on stage. And 
I remember that was your first time to ever share your story publicly. It was. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. We'll put a link into it. I just recently watched it again and you did such a great job. Thank you. It wasn't something to be celebrated. It was a very sobering thing. And I was so full of emotion that I think you could really see that come out. And I was trying to hold back because I didn't want to literally weep on stage. But there was a part of me that wanted to weep from grief that we were having this conference. But there was a part of me also that was like full of gratefulness. Like my heart was just so full that we were having this conversation Yeah. at the same time. Yeah. We're going to talk more about that. I want to, if you just, before we talk about how do we have these conversations well and how do we Mm -hmm. care for people who have been sexually abused, I would like for you to just share some of your stories so we can have a little backstory to know where you're coming from. So take me back to, you know, 2003, 2002, wherever you want to start that begins, unfortunately, where your story begins with sexual abuse. Okay. I was in seminary. I began in 2002 and had started dating a young man and uh, I was raped and it it took me 15 years to say that work, Mm. which has been extremely difficult. I reported it the very next day and for the good of the calls was told, we'll handle this in-house. We'll take care of this. There was some discipline involved and it was taken care of on campus. So I was discouraged from filing a police report and I went back to my apartment and my roommate was there and I never told her. Mm. I was told not to tell my pastor. So I told no one. I just swallowed it and I, it stayed deep inside me. And I just, I don't know how. I've got an identical twin sister and she laughs at me a lot. And I'm heading in a different direction now. But there are a lot of bad things from our childhood that I've allowed myself to forget. And she'll remind me and I have no knowledge of it. Mm. And then she reminds me, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that now. But she, it's nice to have a twin sister because it's double the memory in a way. So fast forward 15 years, I started seeing some things in the news and I began remembering and I started having horrible dreams. I learned later that a lot of what I was experiencing is called complex trauma or PTSD. And I became very angry, like sinfully angry. And one night after our children went to sleep, my husband said, what is wrong with you, Megan? And I told him what happened. But at the time, I still didn't use the word rape. Mm-hmm. Because I was convinced, I was still convinced as a 30-something-year-old woman that I wasn't raped because truth, again, had been reversed. And he immediately said, you were raped, Megan. And he loved me. And he didn't, he wasn't angry that I hadn't told him before we got married or before then. He, he loved me. He embraced me. His motivation at that point was to protect me from anything and everything that came our way. Yeah. A couple questions for you. First yes. of all, I know I've told you this before, but I'm really sorry that that happened. Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know now on the other side of this a little bit, can you kind of educate us that are listening as to what would motivate or what would keep a woman from not wanting to disclose that to, like you said, you went home and you saw your roommate and you didn't even say anything to her. Can you just kind of educate us and let us into your mind and your heart a little bit so that we can be a little bit more empathetic? Because that's what we want here is we want to say like, because, you know, 
it angers me when I hear people say like, oh, well, she would have said something. And we just know that that's not true with how our brains work and how everything works. Right. So can you just educate us a little bit on maybe what that was for you and then what you've learned through therapy about maybe why that experience of you stuffing that down was where you went in that time? I think the biggest emotion I dealt with in 2003 was shame. I, I put myself there or I allowed myself to go there or I allowed myself to be around this man that I went to church with and I went to class with and I had only been dating for two weeks. Did anyone say those things to you or did you just put those things on yourself? It was not said specifically. Okay. It was implied. Mm. And again, the mind of a 23-year-old woman is very complex, but at the same time, what was done is the opposite of what should have been done, especially right. complementarian men. Mm. They love and protect and they fight like my husband did. Mm -hmm. and he loves Jesus. Mm -hmm. You can love Jesus and still fight for a woman and yeah. fight for the silenced and the broken. Mm -hmm. And the biggest area would be shame. I was embarrassed. I didn't want anyone to know, especially after reporting what happened and the response that I got and the questions I was asked. I thought, oh, if I, if I go to the police department, they're going to ask the same questions and I'm going to have to retell the story. So instead of retelling the story, I will never share about it again. And that will keep me safe because in that moment, I didn't feel safe. Yeah. And for years and years, I didn't, there was this internal battle going on within me that I didn't realize until later. But shame is huge and shame will keep women silent. Yeah. And that shame is not yours to carry. And it's not from the Lord either. It is not. When, when our identities are aligned with, with Christ and when the words of Jesus are louder than the words of those around us or the words online or the critics, it really allows you to do a 180. Yeah. And you have confidence. And I, I, I don't mean uh, um, that more of a Christ-like humility, humble confidence mm -hmm. in who you are. And you are finally comfortable in sharing truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you felt like these men that you disclosed this to should have fought for you, which is true. They should have. They should have taken care of you. You should have been their number one priority, and they weren't. They kind of pushed things aside, said, we'll take care of it, and did not take care of a woman who had been deeply hurt on their watch. How did that affect your relationship with the church? I mean, did, did you finish seminary there? What did that do for you as a 23-year-old woman who had not been taken care of by the people that should have taken care of her? Well, there's a stubbornness in me. And so <laughs> I was determined to finish. So I stayed in school until 2005. I left because my grandfather got sick and my daddy being an only child was going to put him in a home. And I said, no, heck no. And I, I packed up my stuff and I moved in with him within a 24-hour period. And I had to withdraw from school. But let me be clear, my relationship with God never changed. My relationship with the church changed. My relationship with the seminary, with Southern Baptists in general. I stayed away from all SBC politics, seminary. When we would drive through the city where the seminary was, my husband, there's a restaurant that I love there. I'd always make him go in a different direction. And he never asked why, but yeah, it affected 
many things, church, relationships with people, but God never let go of me. He never, ever let go. Mm. And I, I know there are a lot of women that struggle in their relationship with God because they were abused in a seminary, in a church setting or a ministry setting. And I wish I could just break off parts of my faith and just give give them a little bit and share that with them because I, I see, I look back and I see where God carried me through every single year. Mm. The good, the bad, the healing. Can we talk about what that looked like after you said this to your husband for the first time? I love the way you talk about your man. And I met him there at that conference. And it is very evident that he has loved you well through this. And he has stood by your side and he has Mm -hmm. helped you. And I don't think that this is an unusual situation that a woman would carry such burden and shame and not even reveal it to her husband. I think you could probably answer this better, but this seems like this is a common scenario because a woman would be so afraid. Can you talk to me about the journey that you've been on since you said that to your husband for the first time, since you said the word raped for the first time? What does that journey look like for you with healing? Well, with my husband, Vincent, I believe it it started long before he was born. His mama loves Jesus. Like she loves Jesus more than anyone I've ever seen. I want to grow up and be like her. Mm. Her name is Betty Jo, and she raised a godly man by example. So I think it starts by having godly parents that love Jesus, and they view all things through the lens of scripture and not through politics or what would this, what would the deacons think in our church Mm -hmm. if my daughter did this? Or what would someone else in our church think if my daughter got pregnant outside of marriage? Mm -hmm. You love your children and you love them well, and you will raise up strong adults. And I I liked that. I liked a lot of what Vincent had in him. So he had this strength in him that, that never wavered. And the very next day, he drugged me, kicking and screaming to our pastor because he, he didn't know what to do. Yeah. And my pastor, bless his heart, had no idea. Of what, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell the story again. So Vincent told the story. And he didn't say, are you sure this happened? Mm. Or why are you just telling me this now? Why didn't you share this sooner? He didn't say, well, let's just pray about it and it'll go away. He wasn't afraid to be silent. He just sat there. He literally put his head in his hands and he wept. And we all did. And he responded in a way that I wasn't expecting because of the response that I had received. And so he also encouraged me to go to my doctor. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating well. It was affecting my entire body, my mind, my heart, everything. You know, I'm grateful for the the journey that God took you on when you shared with your husband and with the your pastor who so lovingly responded yes. the way that you deserved, you know, 15 years earlier that you didn't get. And, you know, it's also, I love that he said you should go see your doctor because what we know about trauma is that it doesn't just happen and then it's this isolated thing, but it affects so many things about our lives. It affects our bodies, our sleep, our mental health, our physical health, our emotional health, our spiritual health. Like it, it can affect everything. And so I'm grateful for that pastor of yours that you had. I'm curious, Megan, because I don't have my timeline straight in my head. Can you tell me when you first said this to your husband and then went to your pastor, 
what state was our culture in with the Me Too movement? What had that happened or started, or where was that? Can you can you get my timeline straight? Yeah. Here? So this was spring of 2018. Okay. And I wasn't empowered by the Me Too movement. I had never heard of Church Two or SBC Two. I was not empowered by a political hashtag. I was empowered, and I'm I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. After disclosing to my husband and pastor, I began thinking, oh, there might be more women like me that were silenced around the same time by the same people. And so I was empowered from what I read in scripture. And I didn't want there to be other women silenced and confused walking around the world that strangers I don't even know. Mm -hmm. So that's empowered me to come forward and share publicly what happened. And did you find others? Yes, I did. What was that journey like? I grieved. I felt responsible. I hurt. I felt some responsibility that if I had gone to the authorities, if I had been more public at the time, which in my mind, that was not even an option at 23 years old. It never crossed my mind to do anything else. It's so difficult because, you know, you mentioned that you weren't empowered by this statement or hashtag or political movement. I'm wondering if the reason that you mentioned that to me is because people mentioned that to you. Was that a part of your story of people going, okay, so you just want to be a part of a movement? And did that happen to you? Yes. A movement, a conspiracy theory, um, a theological shift. There were lots of of, um, titles put on me all of a sudden. What's the theological shift that they would say? The social justice movement. Oh, well, this is... Instead of people viewing me as an image bearer, they viewed me as a um, someone that was there to make life messy mm. for the church. And the church needs to be protected. The name of Jesus does not need to be protected. The church it does, does not need, need our protection, protection yeah. at all. Uh, so all of a sudden I was labeled as something political, something theological, someone that was out to get someone else. So, I mean, I'm no doctor and I'm no psychologist, (laughs) but it sounds like you would now have trauma added on top of trauma, as in like you are being brave and you're coming forward and saying, this happened to me and this is not okay. This might've happened to other people. So I'm going to try to see if it did so we can help Mm -hmm. each other and prevent this from happening to my daughter when she goes to seminary or your daughter. Like, you know, you're being a voice for the people who don't feel like they could stand up and then to have added trauma on top of people who you thought were your, your allies, your friends, your people that you go to church with. Megan, how did you even deal with that? Did you ever want to just like crawl in a hole and say, just kidding, I take it all back? Yes. And I tell people that often the human nature side of me, looking back now, I would have never told a soul. You really think that or are you happy that you did? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. If it were all about Megan, okay, I would have never shared. I would have maybe told my husband and that's it. But when I lean into to God and when I read scripture, I could not stay quiet for the sake of strangers, people I didn't know that I knew, I knew were out there. And it, it this is a character flaw of mine. Sometimes it's a strength and sometimes it's a weakness. I can't be stopped mm-hmm. and I could not stay quiet. And Vincent understood that and he supported every step I took. 
which I, I haven't said a lot. I'm not a big tweeter. And most of the stuff I, I say is, men, this is what this person is doing right. This pastor got this right. This church got this right. And so I honestly try to focus on stories happening around us where folks are getting things right mm-hmm. for the glory of God instead of being a, an outspoken critic. And I've found that by using my voice that way, I'm heard. I could imagine that now that you have shared your story and talked about this, that you have, this would be a fortunately and unfortunately type of situation, women coming forward to you saying, this yeah. happened to me, what do I do? How how has that been for you to now be the kind of the holder of so many women's stories, I would imagine, because you feel safe to them because there's this common understanding of what it feels like to go through what you and this woman coming to you. How do you handle hearing stories that I would guess would be traumatic again for you to have to relive someone else's horror because it would remind you so much of yours? In 2018, I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I still don't like it's a trauma is a journey. And I, I think Jackie Hill Perry said at, at Caring Well, as whole as I'm going to be this side of heaven and I'm okay with it mm-hmm. in so many words. And that's spot on. I still struggle and I still revert back and I have my moments and I'm not perfect, but you know what? That keeps me leaning on a perfect God. And so when these women come forward with their stories, I'm encouraged because they are comfortable coming to me. And I want them to have a safe place to land, someone that will hear them and understand what they're saying. Because a lot of times these, when we throw out terms and we say this or that, it, it doesn't make sense to someone that hasn't been through it. Yeah. And so when I hear a story and I affirm what's being said and I hear things that maybe aren't being said and I asked questions and the women go, you understand? Mm. I didn't have that. And I think if I had had more um, women around me, I didn't have a soul to talk to at the time that had been through this journey. But this is a fairly new topic. I mean, I remember growing up, I think you may have been raised the same way. Our mothers or our grandmothers said, avoid that man at at school or avoid that man at church. We were silent. So I don't think our mothers and grandmothers and aunts even realized it, but we've been silenced for years, for generations. And coming forward and and talking about this by older women sometimes, especially is is a bad thing. Yeah. Because it was easier to stay quiet. And now I understand why, because it's been hard. How do you think that the question of the hour, Megan. Uh, How do you think the church is doing now? And And I mean, like, you know, you've seen a lot of conversations come up about other things that have happened. And without disclosing anything, I think I want to ask you as much as you can, because people are going to be wondering if there has been any resolve to your particular situation. And I clearly understand you can't go into a lot of that. But has there been any resolve to what happened? to you? And then how do you think that we're doing in this area? I can't speak to the whole, to the the church or the SBC. I can tell you that my church is amazing. I go to a um, fairly large church and there's multiple pastors on staff. And a few of our pastors came to me during the Dr. Christine Blasley Ford 
Supreme Court during those, what was it, the nomination? Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right. And they said, Megan, I viewed her differently because I had heard your story and I knew what kept you silent and what motivated you to come forward. Yeah. And so on a local level, I see a lot of change, but I think we don't ever need to get comfortable and say, oh, we've got it all right. We're going to keep yeah. plugging along. I think there's always areas to improve. The response I got in 2018 was the opposite of what I received in 2003 from the institution. And I was protected. I was loved. I was, I graduated from seminary <laughs> Yay. Um, a year ago, last month. So Congrats. Yeah, I, I, yes, I got my seminary degree and I, wa- I walked across that stage. So there is healing and there is closure on the other side of that. I went through a process called EMDR. It is a process in therapy that I went through that total healing. And I'm a big fan of EMDR. If your therapist is licensed and can, I had to go through an assessment to make sure I could handle it. But we we went through that. And it's ironic that you brought up the re-traumatization that I went through in 2018 because we spent more time on that than we did in 2003. So I had to go through numerous, numerous EMDR sessions about 2018 than I did 2003. Yeah. But EMDR was a very, I'm an an impatient person. I don't like to use a lot of time or money on me (laughs) and my healing. I would rather give that to my children. And so EMDR is equivalent to years of counseling, therapy, medication. And so for me, it, it was a very good option. I love that. I love that. We're recording this in June 2020. So many amazing things are happening in our country right now with acknowledgement of the systematic racism that we've seen for people of color for you know years and years and years, 400 years. This is not something that ended with civil rights movement. We're still seeing this today. And so we're seeing a lot of people rise up and um, join hands with their brothers and sisters who are black and brown. And one of the things I've noticed, and you touched on this a little bit earlier when you said you were not a movement, you were not this. I'm seeing a lot of people struggle with the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Can you tell me your thoughts on this? I think people are afraid of hashtags. People are afraid of political movements. And we need to back away from politics as, as believers. And I'm, I'm speaking to believers when I say this. If our loyalty is to a political party, we will never align with scripture because we, our loyalty is not to a party, it's to Jesus Christ. And our love for Jesus should propel us to act on behalf of our neighbors. And in order to love our neighbor well, we've got to love, love our neighbor differently. And we, whoever is hurting at the moment, whoever is being targeted at the moment is not social justice. It's, it's not political. It is, um, you see in the Bible, it, John 4. Read John 4. I mean, John 4 is a perfect example of what we're looking at right now. And Jesus wasn't focused on everything going on around him. He was focused on that woman and her healing. And she was different than him. She had lived a life that was different than him. And she did not understand him. And she but that didn't stop him and it doesn't need to stop us because it might be misconstrued as political or something we've never done before. Let's focus on who's being hurt right now, who's being targeted. 
that's where Jesus would be right now. Yeah. And I've, yeah. I've said many times in the last few years, if Jesus were with us right now, he'd be down at the um, border, the giving water to women and children and loving them and loving them well. You know, speaking of Black Lives Matter, I've noticed with in particular Christian circles, the fear of using that phrase. And their fear is if I say Black Lives Matter, then that means that I'm a raging liberal. Or if I say Black Lives Matter, then, you know, I swing all the way to the left and I'm just like, I am a socialist and all the things. And I just think as a follower of Jesus that I can say Black Lives Matter pretty boldly because I believe just those three words, that Black Lives Matter. And I think that is where people get in a little bit of a, a struggle over if I say this, then people are going to think this about me, you know? And I want to be someone who has conservative views theologically and super liberal views socially, if that makes sense. Does that make sense mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say? It does. It That's does. the line I want to toe yeah. right there. And I think that can be confusing and difficult for some people who have been raised. If I say this, then this equals that. And I think people that struggle with that, or even me, when I struggle with how should I approach the subject or how should I say, communicate a message that I'm feeling, I go back to my Bible and I make sure those words are louder than what I'm reading online and what I'm hearing around me and what I'm seeing in the news. And when we see people as made in the image of God, it changes our hearts and it influences our politics. It does. And, it does. And we don't we don't see it as a divisive issue anymore. And like you said, it's more important for me to be this than that. And for me, it's more important to be loving than not. And if that confuses you as to who I am politically, I'm okay with that. Yeah. If I don't say Black Lives Matter, I am alienating myself from my neighbor mm. and from sharing the gospel with someone that does not look like me. Love it. Megan, I am by no means happy about what your life has been through. I am 100% happy with the way that you shine the gospel in every area of your conversations and what you talk about and how you live your life. I hear a lot that proximity changes things for us. If you've never met someone who has come to the country um, seeking something better for their family and it might be illegal for them to be here, if you've never met someone like that, it's hard to understand what that journey would be like. If you don't have a friend who is same-sex attracted, it's hard to understand that. And for you, you help us understand the next time we hear a woman say, this happened to me 15 years ago and I didn't say anything. And someone's response might be, why didn't she say something 15 years ago? That doesn't make sense in my brain. Your story helps us understand that. And I know that you would never ask for that story and you would never want to be that for us, but I'm still thankful for you and the way you're handling this part of your story. Thank you. I'm going to, in our show notes, put all the links to all of those talks from the Caring Well Conference because they were so good and yours were amazing. I did not know it was your first time to ever share your story. And so thank you for that. Thanks for being honest and thanks for pointing us to Jesus and thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Jamie. I'm so thankful for Megan's voice and for her courage to share her story with us. She's a wonderful woman who cares deeply for others who have also been victims of abuse. My prayer is that if you or someone you know is experiencing or has experienced abuse at the hands of a friend, a stranger, a leader, or a spouse, I first want to say that I'm sorry. 
I second want to say that this should not happen to you and it's not okay. I'm praying that you will be encouraged to tell someone, report the abuse to the authorities and reach out to a counselor for care. If you are someone who is told of abuse, my prayer is that you will be an empathetic listener and that you will take action to help support your friend as they report the abuse to the authorities. Megan shared in our interview also about her incredible company that works to provide small churches support in reaching others in a digital age. She would like to offer all of my Happy Hour listeners a discount off the monthly and annual subscription to Relevant Reach. Visit relevantreach.org slash Jamie Ivey for all the details. If you miss it, you should sign up for the newsletter because that's where we put this type of stuff. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Quinn Pearson and the whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. Friends, enjoy your week. Share the show with a friend. Have a virtual happy hour with a friend and I'll see you guys back here on Friday for a conversation with Barnabas Piper. Barnabas Piper.